Seeking Rents, the podcast. I'm your host, Jason Garcia, the publisher of Seeking Rents, a newsletter where we explore the ways big businesses and other wealthy interests influence public policy in the state of Florida. That name, Seeking Rents, comes from a term in economics called rent-seeking. And rent-seeking is what happens when a corporation or someone else with wealth and influence uses their power to get laws changed in their favor in a way that allows them to capture even more wealth, often at the expense of someone else, whether that be consumers who end up having to pay higher prices, workers who end up having to work for poorer wages, or small businesses that end up having to compete on an unfair playing field. This is episode 17. The subject of this week's show is a bit different. We're going to take a deep dive into how Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the state's Republican-controlled legislature have been using state power to try and control what Floridians can say, hear, and learn about groups that have been historically marginalized in the United States, like Black people, women, and LGBTQ plus people. A lot of people tend to dismiss this stuff as just kind of noisy culture wars that distract from real problems. Heck, I've been guilty of doing that myself in the past. But these are absolutely economic issues, too. This stuff is about whether we are willing to truly learn from the mistakes of the past, about how decisions driven by racism, sexism, and other prejudices, sometimes even unintentionally, have harmed so many people's ability to build wealth and achieve economic security, and about how those very same harms help preserve the power, wealth, and privilege of a lucky few. Because here's the thing. Ultimately, every culture war is a class war, too. More on that in just a sec. But first, if you haven't already, please make sure you subscribe to Seeking Rents. That'll ensure that all of our stories and podcasts are emailed straight to your inbox the moment they publish. This podcast, for instance, is actually based on a story we published last week. There's no paywall at Seeking Rents, and there never will be. You can subscribe for free, but there's also an option to pay for a subscription if you could afford it. Those voluntary paid subscriptions are really important. They help us cover reporting expenses like public records requests. So if you can, please consider paying. Every dollar really does help. Also, one quick plug. I recently uh, collaborated with More Perfect Union on a video exploring Ron DeSantis' record on four key economic issues, housing, insurance, electricity rates, and taxes. The uh, folks at More Perfect Union are super talented at putting together videos that tackle complex subjects in easy to follow and entertaining ways. This one's worth checking out, if I do say so myself. I'll post a link in the show notes. Okay, let's dive into this week's subject. So a lawyer for Ron DeSantis recently made a remarkable admission. It happened late last month inside the Albert P. Tuttle U.S. Court of Appeal building in Atlanta where the DeSantis administration is trying to defend one of the Florida governor's most cherished achievements, the so-called Stop Woke Act. You may remember this law because it got a lot of attention last year when DeSantis personally pushed it through the Florida legislature. Branded by DeSantis as the, quote, Stop Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act, it sets restrictions on how public schools and private employers can talk to their students or employees about concepts like systemic racism, unconscious bias, and male privilege. The specific part of the law being challenged in this case makes it illegal under Florida's Civil Rights Act for a business to require its employees to go through training programs that promote certain ideas that the government of Florida has deemed repugnant. 
like the idea that people develop unconscious prejudices over time that can lead them to engage in unintentionally racist or sexist actions. DeSantis and other supporters of the Stop Woke Act have always said the new law is about protecting individual rights, specifically the right of someone not to be forced to listen to a discussion about something like systemic racism. The Florida legislature literally named the law an act relating to individual freedom. And when DeSantis signed it in April 2022, he said, and this is a direct quote, We believe an important component of freedom in the state of Florida is the freedom from having oppressive ideologies imposed upon you without your consent. Now, the United States Supreme Court says that corporations have free speech rights just like living and breathing people do, which means that the Stop Woke Act infringes on the First Amendment. And it does so in a particularly dangerous way because it targets what a company says rather than something content neutral like where or when a company speaks. Think about it this way. Under the Stop Woke Act, a company cannot make its employees go to a training session that teaches everyone to become self-aware of their own unconscious biases, at least not without risking a state investigation and a civil lawsuit. But a company is absolutely free to make its employees attend a training session that claims the entire notion of unconscious bias is bullshit. This doesn't mean the law is automatically unconstitutional, but it does mean that in order for it to be constitutional, the state of Florida must demonstrate a couple of things. First, it must show that the law is necessary to accomplish some compelling public interest. And second, it must show that the law accomplishes that interest in the least restrictive or the most narrowly tailored way possible. A trial court judge has already ruled the state of Florida is likely to fail this test and issued an injunction preventing the DeSantis administration from enforcing these employer training provisions of the Stop Woke Act. But DeSantis has appealed the ruling to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal. Now, I say all this in order to set the scene for what happened inside that courtroom in Atlanta, which is where the 11th Circuit held oral arguments on the case. Late in the hearing, one of the three judges presiding over this appeal, a Donald Trump appointee, in fact, began to press DeSantis's lawyer on whether the Stop Woke Act really is the least restrictive way to achieve the state's goal here, which, as DeSantis himself said, is meant to save people from having ideas, quote, imposed upon them without their consent. I'm going to play you the full exchange. It begins with DeSantis's attorney restating the purpose of the law. And, and here, Your Honors, the, the, the interest that the state is driving at just is requiring attendance at uh, workplace trainings where these ideas are inculcated. So I, I can't think of any uh, 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 more tailored approach to uh, addressing that interest than, uh, than what the state well, I mean, here's, here's just a hypothetical. I mean, they, perhaps Florida could have passed a law that gave an employee um, the right to sue uh, if they suffered, I don't know, you know, um, uh, mental distress, mental or emotional distress in light of being required to attend a uh, presentation like this. What, what about that as a more narrowly tailored option? So I don't think so, Judge Brasher. And I, I think this idea of, uh, of whether the speech has caused some kind of mental distress is kind of a fiction created by, by the plaintiffs. Uh, there's no, no indication that that is what 
Um, that is what the state was aiming at here. Uh, the state, I think, has an interest in, uh, in protecting people from, from racist and offensive speech, even if they, uh, even if they uh, would welcome, misguidedly welcome it. Uh, now, really? Now really? Here, That's interesting. So the state has an interest in protecting me from hearing things that I want to hear? Uh, I think so, Your Honor. I don't, I don't see why, um, why whether the employee welcomes hearing that they are more in a, a morally inferior race goes to oh. the state's interest. Look carefully at what just happened there. DeSantis's lawyer initially claimed that the state of Florida was simply trying to stop companies from making their employees go through training sessions espousing ideas that Ron DeSantis and the Republican-controlled Florida legislature find offensive. But then, when the judge points out a narrower way to accomplish that, the DeSantis lawyer acknowledges the real goal, to stop these kind of trainings entirely. In other words, Ron DeSantis isn't trying to stop companies from talking about systemic racism to individual employees who don't want to hear about it. He's trying to stop companies from talking about systemic racism to any employees at all. This confession seemed to stun the judges. Another one on the panel, and another Trump appointee, immediately jumped in to ask DeSantis' lawyer about whether the state would have an interest in like, preventing people from attending a Nazi rally, even if they really wanted to go. It was actually a reference to a famous U.S. Supreme Court case from the 1970s that found the First Amendment protected the rights of Nazi supporters to rally in a place called Skokie, Illinois, where a large number of Holocaust survivors lived. The deceased lawyer stammered for a moment and then went dead silent for a full 10 seconds while he tried to think of an answer. It was unbelievably awkward. Here's that part. Does the state have an interest in protecting people in Skokie from hearing Nazi speech. I mean, some of the attendees probably enjoyed that parade. Why didn't, this, why didn't the state have an interest in making sure that they didn't hear that very harmful and wrong speech? Uh, well, Your Honor, I think um, I think whether the state had an interest in that uh, clearly, uh, uh, the restriction was not was not tailored to advance it. And, and, I, and here, Your Honor, I would um, I would point as well to the fact that um, uh, keeping keeping racist work si uh, uh, speech out of the workplace, I think, clearly is a compelling interest, um, uh, uh, and uh, that is united here with the state's interest in protective uh, protecting. Uh, captive audience, its workers um, from being uh, conscripted into listening uh, to this speech. So it is only the union of those two interests um, that the state is, is uh, the act here is furthering. But while this admission may have caught those judges off guard, the fact is that using state power to silence disfavored speech has been a hallmark of Ron DeSantis's time in Tallahassee and a likely preview of what he would do in Washington, D.C., too, if he's elected president. In DeSantis's five years as Florida governor, he signed laws giving police more power to punish peaceful protesters while protecting violent vigilantes, enabling fringe activists to get books removed from school libraries, and clamping down on discussions of LGBTQ plus issues in classrooms. He put people in charge of the public New College of Florida, including at least one person who worked on the Stop Woke Act, who just voted to eliminate the school's gender studies major. And when a major employer, the Walt Disney Company, bent to pressure from its own workers and spoke out against just one of these new laws, 
DeSantis retaliated by having the legislature pass a bill giving him control of the government district that oversees Walt Disney World's land in Central Florida. You may recall earlier this year that the DeSantis administration refused to let Florida high schools offer a new advanced placement African-American studies course created by the College Board. The governor's office claimed at the time that the course was being used as a, quote, vehicle for a political agenda. Well, the Miami Herald recently reviewed the state's internal comments on the course, which reveal what exactly the DeSantis administration was really upset about. Those records showed, for instance, that DeSantis education staffers objected to one lesson teaching students about how Europeans benefited from trading enslaved people and from the materials those enslaved people produced. They also opposed another lesson exploring how slavery undermined the ability of many black people to build wealth across generations because enslaved people weren't paid wages they could save or pass down to descendants and had no legal rights to own or accumulate any property of their own. DeSantis staffers didn't want students learning that lesson partly because, quote, it may be promoting the critical race theory idea of reparations, according to the Herald. And DeSantis hasn't just tried to silence speech he doesn't like either. He's also used his position to protect, and in some cases even compel, speech he supports. He signed one law meant to stop social media companies from suspending the accounts of politicians who promote violence. He signed another law that forces unions representing public sector workers to distribute anti-union propaganda. He signed a third law that prevents healthcare companies and licensing boards from disciplining doctors who refuse to provide healthcare services like contraception or vaccinations. And his new leadership at New College has even lowered admission standards in order to increase male enrollment. Now, a common theme across a lot of these laws and policies is something I referred to at the top. They try to control what Floridians can say, hear, or learn about groups of people who have been historically disenfranchised in America, like Black people, women, and LGBTQ plus people. But why would controlling that speech be so important? Well, I would argue that the more people that learn about issues like systemic racism, unconscious bias, and male privilege, the more people that may be willing to support policies that try to undo some of the resulting harms. Harms that, once again, help maintain the power, wealth, and privilege of a very few. Remember, one of the reasons the DeSantis administration didn't want Florida high school students learning about the long-term wealth impacts of slavery was that it might lead to support for reparations. And the truth is, these impacts are everywhere. Consider unemployment insurance. This is one of the nation's most important safety nets, one that protects workers who lose their job through no fault of their own from having their entire wealth wiped out. It also initially excluded most Black workers entirely. That's because when Congress first created the unemployment system in the 1930s, federal politicians cut agricultural and domestic workers out of it. And roughly two-thirds of all Black employees at the time were either agricultural or domestic workers. Of course, this is an exclusion that also disproportionately hurt female workers, too. Now, unemployment insurance laws were eventually expanded to include agricultural and domestic employees, although only after an entire generation of those workers had missed out on this wealth protection. But many states, particularly in the U.S. South, has since cut unemployment benefits and imposed new barriers to obtaining them. 
Florida is among the worst offenders. The state now provides its workers with some of the poorest unemployment insurance in the entire nation. And here's another example I learned about from reading the work of Dorothy Brown, a professor of tax law at Georgetown University. When a white couple gets married in the United States, they usually get a tax cut. But when a black couple gets married in the United States, they're more likely to get a tax increase. Why? Because the U.S. tax code favors households with one primary breadwinner over households with two spouses earning roughly equal incomes. And a far greater proportion of married black couples are in two-salary homes. That's partly because black men and women face more discrimination in the labor market and more often must have two salaries just to reach a middle-class standard of living. In fact, one study of black and white families over a 25-year period between 1984 and 2009 found that marriage increased white wealth by $75,000, but marriage did nothing for black wealth. This is the direct result of policymaking that has been driven by the needs of white people, particularly white men, and that has failed to consider the disparate impacts on others who haven't had the same historical advantages. The way the United States taxes married couples is literally the legacy of a rich white dude from Seattle who was dodging taxes by assigning half of his income to his stay-at-home wife. That was for tax purposes only, of course. He didn't actually give his wife control of half the household money. Brown recently wrote a book called The Whiteness of Wealth, which takes a deep dive into racism and U.S. tax policy. It's the sort of book that really can't help you understand why so many people want to crush any kind of conversation about something like systemic racism. And it can also maybe help you understand why so many billionaires have been financing Ron DeSantis' rise to prominence. Okay, that's our show for this week. I'm going to include a bunch of links in the show notes to things I referenced in this piece, including a link to the whiteness of wealth. It really is an eye-opening read. But if you've got any more questions or just any general comments or thoughts, my contact info will also be in the show notes. And please feel free to suggest subjects for any future pods too. And once again, please subscribe if you haven't already. The easiest way to find us is at seekingrentsfl.com. And please pay for a subscription too if you can afford it. We've uh, had a little gap between shows recently as life got in the way a little bit, but I've got a few more in the works right now, including one on property taxes in Florida and another about how the state helps billionaire families like the Walmart heirs hide their wealth from taxes. So we'll be back again very soon. Until then, thanks for listening.